Let's have the kids line up at the door, and we will pray for them and for us, and then we will read our scripture this morning. Let's pray. God, we pray that you, uh, yeah, you're the Lord of heaven and of earth, and you have since uh, set your son upon your throne to rule and to reign. And so I pray this morning that all of us, from the littlest of us to the oldest of us, that we would all see that as good news for us. That you are a king who reigns, and you are a king who reigns for us. That you sit at the, 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 the hand of the Father, making intercession for us. And we praise you for that, King Jesus, this morning. And so we pray that you would intercede for us now. Uh, that you would go before the Father in heaven and that you would plead your blood for us, that you would announce your good news for us, that your word would stand for us, for all of us, and that we might hear it and we might respond to it. We ask this in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Kids, have a good time at Children's Church. And let's read our text this morning. I'll read it. You follow along. It should be on the screens. Hear God's word this morning from 1 Kings chapter 19. Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, So may the gods do to me and more also if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. Then Elijah was afraid, and he arose and went and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. But he himself, Elijah, went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree, and he asked that he might die, saying, It is enough now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. And he lay down and slept under the broom tree. And behold, an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was was at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. And he ate and drank and lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came again to him a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. And he arose and ate and drank and went in the strength of that food forty days and forty nights to Horeb the Mount of God. Then he came to a cave and lodged in it, and behold, the word of the Lord came to him, and he said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? And he said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, killed your prophets with the sword, and I, even I only, am left. And they seek my life to take it away. And he said, Go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold, there came a voice to him and said, 
what are you doing here, Elijah? And he said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, killed your prophets with the sword, and I, even I only, am left. And they seek my life to take it away. And the Lord said to him, Go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you arrive, you shall anoint Hazel, Haziel to be king over Syria. And Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint to be king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat, and of Abel Meholah, you shall anoint to be prophet in your place. And the one who escapes the sword of Haziel shall Jehu put to death. And the one who escapes the sword of Jehu shall Elijah put to death. Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. When we left two weeks ago, chapter 18, we left, if you remember, with hope. Now, we, you might have read along in this story several times in your Bible reading plan. You might know the story of Elijah and know how it ends. But one of the things about, you know, as we walk through a text, the people who first heard this text would have heard it for the first time, and there would have been surprise. There's a plot, a story being told. And good stories leave you in suspense with conflict unresolved. You're unsure about how the story might end. Now, we who live back on the side of the story, those of us who've heard the story a million times over, you know how the story ends, so it's, it's hard to re-enter into that surprise. But there was a sense that Elijah was hopeful for the renewal of Israel. And so when the king rushes back, and as Elijah tucks in his mantle and runs ahead of the king, and we're told here that Ahab tells Jezebel everything that happened. And as he tells the story of everything that happens, he tells the story in such a way, according to the text, that all of it is attributed to Elijah. It's not attributed to God, by the way. That's an important note. It's attributed to Elijah. And the response that Elijah has, or that Jezebel has to this, is what? If Elijah is responsible for everything, the defeat of her god Baal in the the conflict between Baal and Yahweh and the slaughter of the prophets, then Elijah should be put to death. Now remember, Jezebel comes from the land of Baal, the worship of Baal. Baal has always been her god. She was in some part responsible for the policies that gathered the prophets of Israel and killed them, and she was instrumental in the liturgies of Baal worship that filled the land of Israel. So when she hears about all that Elijah has done, she intensifies her mission, saying, so may the gods do to me and more also, if I don't make your life, Elijah, like the life of one of the prophets of Baal by this time tomorrow. Now, here in the ESV, which we just read, we read that Elijah is afraid and ran for his life to Beersheba. Now, let's stop here for a second, because the Hebrew actually says, Elijah sees and Elijah goes. Now, contextually, I think we can take this a few ways, but in Scripture, eyes are organs of discernment. We're told in uh, Zechariah 4.10 that the prophets are the eyes of the Lord. They walk, according to Zechariah, to and fro in the earth, 
collecting evidence to present before the Lord. So here, Elijah sees. Now what this could be is he sees and recognizes Jezebel is the one picking the fight with God, and thus his prophet Elijah more than Ahab, and he sees that due to this, the hope for renewal has been dashed. And so Elijah flees, he leaves, he withdraws, he goes, he departs. Now, as the story has kind of went along, as we've read through Kings, when the prophet of God leaves the land of God, that means God's word departs from the land. It's a sign of judgment. Now, Elijah is disappointed. You skip ahead to verse 4, we see his disappointment. So this is the first move of our text, the disappointment and flight of Elijah. Why does Elijah leave Jezreel for Beersheba? Well, because Jezebel has declared war against him and against God as God's prophet is declared, as she declares war against God's prophet, she's declaring war against God himself. Now, in spite of what she's seen and heard from what Ahab has told her, told her what he has seen and heard, namely the power of God falling upon the altar and the way all the people of Israel responded with the worship of Yahweh and the subsequent judgment falling on the prophets of Baal, none of that shifts Jezebel's heart. If anything, she's hardened by it. And she sets herself up and all her powers against the kingdom, of the kingdom against Elijah. Now why? Why isn't there renewal? I think that's one of the central questions of 1 Kings 19. And we get the answer at the end, but here in the beginning, there is reasonable despair that Israel will not be renewed. What do you do when renewal doesn't come? What do you do when the dreams don't come true. When, when the, the dreams that things will finally be different aren't actually different. When promises were made and they are not returned with the appropriate fidelity and faithfulness, what do you do? Maybe even, not only are they not returned, but they're accompanied by a new ruthlessness. What do you do when you thought you turned a corner? But it just ends in another dead end. I think something apple could be, you have a friend, family member, that you love greatly, and you so want them to know God, to turn to Jesus. You've shared your life with them, your story. You know their story. You know how much they are loved by Christ and how much you love Christ how much they are loved by his church, and yet they still don't believe. Or maybe they confess belief, but they are in the middle of being led astray by what the Bible calls the spirit of the age. Now, the spirit of the age is the idolatry of the age. Now, remember, those idolatries always cut both ways. They cut all sorts of ways, in fact. But they often center around money, sex, power, and all the off and on ramps to those things. What happens when there is somebody in your life that is so tantalized by that idolatry and their mind has been shifted? What do you do? I want to illustrate this in a couple ways. I went to uh, Liberty University for a year. Now that year 
was super impactful in all sorts of ways. God used that year at Liberty to draw me to himself, to reclaim me as his own. And so I was, I was growing spiritually, and in the middle of that process, I met a girl. Her name was Valerie. And as I got to know her and her story, and as we shared stories, there was so much we had in common with where we had been and where we were and maybe where we were going. And that was coupled with all the feels, right, of being a 19-year-old and worlds being blown up. And I thought for sure Valerie was going to be the one. And then she wasn't. And I thought, oh, I can win her back. And for a bit there, there was this like back and forth moments where I thought things were going to be rescued, where my love and affection were going to be returned, but they weren't. And in the wake of that, there was just coldness, deadness, and meanness. And there was nothing I could do. And you know what I felt? Deep despair and sadness. Ryan and I saw a movie called The Banshees of Ishishirin. It's a weird name. But the movie's set in Ireland, an island off the mainland, or an island off the mainland of Ireland during the, the Civil War, the Irish Civil War. And the story tells a type of parable. It tells the story of two friends, Calm and Padraig. They're drinking buddies, they're two friends who have a story and a history. And then one day, Calm tells Padraig that he doesn't want to be friends anymore. That he's been wasting all his time with Calm, uh, all, all his time with Padraig. That his life is going to be dedicated to music and that he's done being friends with him. And Padraig thinks that he can win Calm back, that this is just a, a phase. But every effort seems to fail. And there's these moments where he thinks they're going to be friends again. One moment is when Calm steps in and defends Padraig in a fight with the local policeman. But it turns out it was just, it was not a restoration of their friendship. There was no renewal. Padraig becomes destabilized greatly by the loss of one of his very few friends. And the movie, at least in part, is about rejection and loss. Calm will not receive Padraig as friend, and there is nothing that Padraig can do about it. And you know what he's left with? Despair. What do you do when all your efforts to change someone's mind about you, about God, about the church, about what the church is to be and do in the world, when all of that is just met with resistance? Like, what do you do when your love that burns so hot, so true, is spurned by coldness and rejection? Elijah leaves. He goes to Beersheba, maybe out of fear, definitely out of despair, and maybe it's reasoned judgment from God. Now, the text, interestingly, does not say the Lord told him to go there. Now, I find that interesting because in all the other places that Elijah has moved in the narrative, Elijah receives the word from the Lord to go there. We don't get that here in this text. Beersheba is on the southern edge of Judah. Remember, the kingdom has been split into two. We have the northern kingdom, Israel, which is where Ahab is the king. This is where Elijah has been, and this is where his ministry has been. 
And then we have the southern kingdom, Judah, ruled by a different king at the time. So Elijah leaves Israel to go to Judah. And he leaves his servant there and then goes further in to the wilderness and sits under a broom tree. And notice what he says. Might I die? Might I die? Lord, would you just let me die? There is deep loss. There's mad frustration. And there is a sense of failure that Elijah feels. After fire fell from heaven, right? Now think about this. The most cataclysmic moment in his life. The moment of his greatest victory. Fire falls from heaven. People bow down in worship. And he runs with his mantle to assume his place as the prophet of God, leading the king of God, serving the people of God in the land of God. And all of that fails. One of the things about that's been interesting about pastoring City Press, uh, first Sunday of November was my 10th year. Um, not officially. I, I served as interim for like 10, 11 months before I actually became the official pastor. But one of the things that's interesting about the story of City Press is the constant up and down of this church. There have been so many times where we've turned corners, right, Rich? Only to end up in the same place. So many people have left, whether a job or a move or maybe something more traumatic, a divorce, a deep loss, something that had happened with conflict, something happened when they're led astray, something happens where their faith is in flux, they're deconstructing or they're disbelieving or they're wanting to worship some other God of their own making. It's all those things. We've all felt that to a certain degree. What do you do when you're, when you're crushed? When your dreams are dashed, when your plans are foiled, when you experience great failure? Failure that is shameful, by the way, that everybody else knows about. Like the decree's gone out by Jezebel, the queen, that she's going to kill Elijah after this moment of success in Elijah's ministry. What do you do? What do you do when things don't work out? When your mom isn't healed? When your friend doesn't repent? When all the techniques you've used to quiet that baby end in another sleepless night? What do you do when renewal doesn't come? What do you do when a person who you love continues to walk away from God in their unbelief or when someone you, who you love believed but is deconstructing to the point that they believe no more? Elijah voices his despair to the Lord and he wishes to die. And this is the place, friends, that despair should take us. Not to the hopes, now let me qualify this, not to the hopes of leaving the world as much as to the despair of carrying all of this and giving it to God in prayer and complaint. Because this is what Elijah will do. 
Elijah will elicit lament and complaint to God. Is it enough now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. Notice where is his failure. He has failed to be the better prophet. He's failed where? In his calling. There is something that cuts deep in us when our vocations are a failure. Now, some of you feel this every time your adult child doesn't act in a very adultish way. Or when they are in public, your little child, and they don't do what every Edgar should do in public, right? When you present your work to a colleague, when all your postulations end in a rocket blowing up, when you try to help a person and they reject the help and you end up right back, and they end up right back where they started. Now, Elijah goes to the desert to die. He isn't just languishing. He isn't just fatigued. He is in deep despair and depression. He is alone. He will say in verses 10 and 14, I alone am left. This is the dark night of the soul for Elijah. It's a place of deep sadness, a place of deep loss. It's a place of a spiritual low and depression. His faith in some way is rattled, and there doesn't seem to be anything that he can do to change it. It's a place of deep rejection. And I think for us, so many things can trigger it. For Elijah, Israel will not be renewed. And as a prophet, this means that all Elijah will now bring to Israel is accusation and further judgment. Now think about that. If his calling as prophet is to proclaim the word of the Lord, with the hope that Israel will be renewed in their covenant with the Lord. They will be remarried. And Israel rejects that. And now every time Elijah preaches God's message to the people, it just continues to harden their hearts and gives them further judgment. What would you do with such a calling if you knew every time you preached, taught, spoke, that what you would be met with is just a face of rejection and there was nothing you could do about it. Like Jonah, Elijah isn't sure he's up to the task. In some ways, Paul is like him, right? We read in Romans 9, I would do anything to see my people repent. Remember, we we just got out of Romans. This isn't too long ago. I would do anything to see my people repent and believe in the risen Jesus. Here Paul's speaking about his fellow Israelites, his own people, and how they are rejecting Jesus and that message. Moses too, the prophet of God, desired to die for the sake of Israel if only the people would not be so stiff-necked. And so he laments this to the Lord. Elijah bears this to the Lord. He, He takes his burden and he lays it down. Now, this is symbolic, uh, and and he lies down. He goes to sleep. It's symbolic of a death, by the way. Elijah laying the burden down and giving giving it to the Lord by saying, I just want to die, God. I'm just going to be like a prophet, just like my father's. No one's going to hear the message and respond. And what does he do? He gives that burden to the Lord, and then he lies down, and what? He goes to sleep. He goes to sleep. And then an angel meets him, feeds him, and restores him. A couple things. 
For many of us who have a difficulty sleeping, like, right, the stopping of the spinning of the plates in our mind so we can rest, there is a death that has to occur for you to sleep. You must truly let go of control and give that control to someone else. For us, church, it's the Lord. If we're going to be refreshed, even for a moment, we must relinquish. Now, Elijah does at least part one of this by expressing to the Lord he wants to die because his prophetic calling is just going to end in judgment against the people that he loves. So that's part one, and in giving that to the Lord, he is refreshed. Notice the Lord's kindness, the gentle, lowly ways of God. He hears Elijah's complaint. He responds with mercy. The Lord brings water and bread, and that word, that phrase, like bread on live coals, that's how the Hebrew reads. Like the actual physicalness of the Lord's provision to Elijah. And God sends his messenger, and the messenger bakes Elijah bread. So Elijah can continue in his calling and his journey. To where? Horeb. Horeb is Mount Sinai. It's the other name for Mount Sinai in the Bible. Refreshed for a moment, Elijah resumes his prophetic calling, and that calling takes him to Sinai. Now, this is what Peter Lightheart says about this. Elijah is again again, moving through the history of Israel. Now, have to understand something about the Bible. The Bible uses represent, representation, representatives that represent something for a vast majority of people. Elijah is moving through the history of Israel as a representative of Israel, having confronted the Pharaoh like Ahab and his court magicians, the prophets of Baal, he wins great victory by humbling the gods of Ahab. Under the threat of Jezebel, he leaves the land and is fed miraculously in the wilderness on his way to Sinai. In his early, earlier journey into the wilderness, he's undergoing prophetic training as Moses does before the Exodus. And after Carmel, Elijah acts as a representative of Israel, returning to the place where the covenant the marriage ceremony between Yahweh and Israel was first formed. He goes there because Israel has broken its covenant. Now, don't miss the representative nature of things in the Bible. We are individualist in the West. Each human being responsible for his own sins and destiny. But in the Bible, there is representation and substitution. Elijah doesn't go to Sinai to vent, but to exercise his prophetic calling. The Lord hears Elijah's despair and restores him and sends him to Sinai as a representative of Israel. And Israel's prophets in the Bible are members of Yahweh's court, his council. They're officers in the court of heaven. We see this when the prophet Jeremiah says, false prophets have not stood in the council of Yahweh, that they should see and hear his word. But if they stood in my council, then they would have announced my words to my people and would have turned back from their evil way and from the evil of their deeds." See, prophets stand in the court of Yahweh, and they bind and loose things in heaven and on earth. And Elijah presents evidence on the top of the mountain of the condition of Israel. God asks, 
What are you doing here, Elijah? And he says, I've been very jealous for the Lord, just as you have been, Yahweh. Elijah, his prophet, has been jealous for his people to return back to God. And they have forsaken your covenant, God. They, they throw down your altars. They, they kill your prophets by the sword. And I'm the only one left. And now they want to take my life too. Now here, notice, Elijah doesn't intercede for Israel. Moses went to the top of Horeb and interceded for Israel as representative. He pleaded God's mercy for God's people who were stiff-necked and who were worshiping golden calves. Elijah accuses. And he's right. And he feels alone in this and feels rejected. And notice what Yahweh does. Okay, Elijah, go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. And so Elijah goes. And the Lord, like with Moses, passes by. How does he pass by? First, in a great and strong wind. A wind so strong, by the way, that it breaks the rocks. Oh, man. Don't we think that if the Lord would just show up powerfully, that it would break the hard hearts of those we love and who are rejecting him? And then the text says, but the Lord was not in the wind. And after that, an earthquake. Don't we think if there was just some seismic shifts in our world, that the world would repent and listen to the Lord? But the Lord is not in the earthquake. And then fire. Oh, we think if there was a fire, like that could be the fire of atonement where everything that's not pure is burned and shown what it really is. Or it could be a fire that turns the lights on, gets someone going, gets someone fired up. But the Lord was not in the fire. Now, all these ways, by the way, are ways God shows up in the Old Testament. They're called theophanies. When God shows up in the Old Testament, he shows up in these ways. But he takes Elijah out onto the mountain, shows him all these things, and says, that's not where I am. And then it says, after the fire, there was a low whisper. How does the Lord come? We talked about, we recited and prayed the psalm the still, small voice of the Lord. Even the faintest whisper of his word is a thing that can bring renewal and change trajectories of human hearts. The Lord comes in his word, the faintest of words. Uh, we are, I made the family list on the way to church this morning, but Stephen Curtis Chapman sang a song that was popular when I was in college called Waiting for the Lightning. And the song essentially describes this tendency that we want God to show up. In the first verse, you know, Stephen sings about how there's time for a change and we're waiting for the Lord to, to shake us, to wake us up. It's time to change. You're, you're living the wrong way. And, and in college, that described my life before I went to Liberty. Like I was just waiting for the lightning of God to show up and shake me loose from being so stupid. I'm chasing after all these other idols. To tell, maybe we want God to wake up and tell us what his plan is. What are you doing, God? Do something. 
And the song says, God is always quietly whispering your name. Here God whispers his word. And Elijah, like Moses, wraps his face and goes into a cleft of a rock. And the Lord speaks. What are you doing here, Elijah? And they repeat the whole thing again. Don't miss the sweet condescension of the Lord. Just as Moses requests to see God's glory, Elijah, who wants to die, needs God's presence and reassurance of his calling, and God condescends and speaks. And here he gives Elijah a new mission. Go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. When you arrive, anoint Haziel to be king over Syria. And Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint to be king over Israel. Now, don't miss that. Like, hello, like, Elijah's anointing kings here. One in a Gentile land. It's not even Israel, Syria. And one in Judah, where he does not reside. And then he says, find Elisha, the son of Shaphat, and anoint him to be a prophet in your place. Now, we'll talk about that more after uh, in the new year. Then he says, the one who escapes from the sword of Haziel shall Jehu put to death, and the one who escapes the sword of Jehu shall Elijah put to death. Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. Yahweh no longer intends to call the house of Ahab back, but he intends to judge them. We're told here Yahweh, through Elijah's ministry, will raise up three swords against Israel. And those swords will bring judgment. But notice, what I want you to notice is it's not just going to bring judgment. What does the swords also do? They preserve 7,000 who will never bow or kiss Baal. Now that number, 7,000, probably symbolic of a complete number. But Ahab's house will be overcome by Haziel and Jehu, and Elijah's successor, Elijah, Elisha. And the Lord will do what? He'll bring a new people, a remnant out of the ruins of the old. Renewal will come, but not how Elijah perceived it. Yahweh will birth a remnant from within Israel, and that remnant will remain faithful. Even while all the rest of the land is bowing and kissing Baal, there will be a complete number of people in Israel, a remnant, who will not do so. And this, of course, leads us to Jesus. Jesus is the thing that comes out of this remnant, by the way. Right? There is a remnant that remains faithful a remnant that's taken off into exile, who dies as Israel and comes back. And out of that remnant, there will be one, as we lead into Advent next week, there will be one who will come. And Jesus comes, right? He heals the sick. He casts out demons. He stills storms. He does all these wonderful works. But those works have what? No appreciable effect on Israel. The crowds are not persuaded. The religious leaders are not persuaded. Herod and Pilate are not persuaded. Though surrounded by all these dazzling signs, they ask for another sign. And Jesus says, the only sign that will be given to you is the sign of Jonah, a sign of death and resurrection, and also a sign of the prophet leaving for Gentile lands. Signs don't convince Ahab and Jezebel either. 
And the sign given to them is the sign of death and resurrection. Elijah's Elijah's own symbolic death and resurrection under the broom tree in the wilderness. In the midst of judgment, the Lord will not forget his people. That is the message, and that's the, the gospel hope for us this morning, City Press. What do you do with all your disappointments and despair? What do you do with all the failings of your calling? Well, I'm here to tell you that the Lord has not forgotten you. The Lord has not forgotten you. In all your wrestlings, in all your sleepless nights, in all your sadness, the Lord has not forgotten you. Now what you might be experiencing is a death. But what you will be given is resurrection. And God is quietly whispering that to you over and over and again. Now what's interesting to me is that Paul quotes this passage in Romans 11. He says, God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they've killed your prophets. They've demolished your altars. And I alone am left and they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him, Paul says? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. Paul is a type of Elijah, the first prophet to the Gentiles, rejected by his own people. Paul anguishes over Israel's unbelief. He too desires to die for his siblings and anguishes over it. The lone prophet apostle becomes a means of persevering faith so that a remnant will be saved through judgment. And that preservation is an act of the sheer mercy of God. God says in Romans 11, I have kept for my self. Friends, the Lord has kept for himself a remnant who will be faithful. Namely, we see this in Jesus and in all his offspring, born of the Spirit and the Word, baptized into his church. He calls you back every Sunday at this covenant renewal ceremony. That's what this is, by the way. We renew our vows here at the table. We will. We receive from the Lord what we cannot do on our own accord. We take it and we eat it. We walk out in a word of blessing and we do it again the next week and the next week and the next week. And why do we do it? Because we are wrapped up in the Lord who keeps us. The Lord is the one who will keep you. And all the friends and all the people who are turning from the Lord, the Lord alone is the one who can usher them back. He's the one that's keeping them through all of those trials and all of those shrinking away. He's the only one by his word that can renew them and bring them life. So hope in him today. Hope in the God who keeps you by his mercy and his grace, especially in the places where you're despairing, even unto death. Let's pray. Help us, God, we pray. I know I've encountered many 
dark nights of the soul. Maybe not like many people in this room have. Maybe not with the same severity or pain. And yet, in that moment, I found myself despairing of life itself. And so I pray this morning, right now, whoever uh, is in that place today, that they would hear the gentle whisper of your voice, even right now, that you have kept them, that you will preserve them because of Christ. Because of Christ's faithfulness, they, even in their unfaithfulness, can be preserved. So I pray that we would help all of us to cling to that today. Help us to come to you honestly with our despair and our, our depression, sadness, spiritual depression and sadness. Our grief at the, way, at the condition of our own hearts and our world. Help us to lay these at the altar this morning as we come and receive from you uh, the sustenance we need. Bread and wine. And that through these simple gifts you might restore us, renew us, capture our hearts once again to your faithful love that you are a God who keeps us and will keep those that you have elected in your love. We need your help this morning, God, because this is, uh, it isn't easy. So give us faith, help our unbelief. We ask this in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.